Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition we'll feature Living to a Healthy Old Age. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen. In news that may make you glad they are no longer around, a British study has suggested that dinosaurs of the vegetarian variety may have contributed to a warm climate. Cattle and other herbivores are host to a variety of microbes within their digestive tract to help them break down food. The resulting methane gas which is produced from the fermentation process is released through flatulence and burping. With the gassy animals believed to be a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, ecologist David Wilkinson of Liverpool John Moores University in England decided to estimate how much sauropods would have produced. He speculated that such emissions may have played a large role behind the warmer climate during the Mesozoic era, although the study was also sparked by his interest in microbes. The ecology of microbes and their role in the working of our planet are one of my key interests in science, he told BBC Nature. Although it's the dinosaur element that captures the popular Im- imagination with this work, actually, it is the microbes living in the dinosaur's guts that are making the methane. He and his colleagues utilise a formula for non-ruminant herbivores where there is a relationship between gas emissions to body size, as well as estimating the sauropod population, or total biomass density. They eventually came up with a value of 520 million tonnes a year. In comparison, it is estimated by the US Environmental Protection Agency that there is an annual production from both human activity, which include the burning of natural gas and landfill and animals, of 550 to 660 million tonnes of methane. Our simple proof-of-concept model suggests greenhouse warming by sauropod megaherbivores could have been significant in sustaining warm climates, says Dave, who also points out that a reduction in atmospheric methane level in the past may have been related to the extinction of megafauna during human colonization of North America. The study has been published in the May 8th edition of Current Biology. A drug is being trialled that may prevent the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The drug attacks the proteins in the plaques that Alzheimer's causes in your brain. The trial has $100 million in funding from the US government and will be conducted by Genentech over five years. They're testing the drug on families who get Alzheimer's when they're only 45 and suffer full dementia by age 51. So this means the results will be quick. They'll know whether it works or not and they'll know whether they're attacking the right thing. The drug is called Cronezumab.
Aubrey de Grey is a leading gerontologist, editor-in-chief of the academic journal Rejuvenation Research, and chief science officer of the SENS Foundation, and founder of the Methuselah Foundation and M-Prize. Aubrey spoke to the Sydney Futurists meetup upstairs at Sydney's Spanish Club. Here is an excerpt from his two-hour talk, where Aubrey spoke about the seven deadly things that lead to the diseases of old age, which we must repair if we are to enjoy a healthy old age. I realise that we don't want to be looking at old people. First thing you would think, right, if you want to understand ageing, well, look at people who've got it, right? Look at people who are old. Wrong answer, it turns out. Because in old people, you've already got the pathologies that you didn't have at all before. And they complicate matters. They spiral out of control. They exacerbate each other. Everything goes to hell in a handbasket after the age of 60 or so. So once you've got to the point where you're already exhibiting the ill health of old age, any kind of analysis of how you got that way is obscured by what's happened recently. The best thing to do, if you want to understand aging itself, is to look at early adulthood. Try to understand what the differences are between, let's say, a 25-year-old and a 40-year-old. You might not think that that's the right place to ask, but think about it now. 40-year-olds, I mean, as long as you haven't got overweight or whatever, you know, they're pretty much as functional, both mentally and physically, as 25-year-olds. You know, not a lot has gone wrong, not a lot has changed. But hang on, fact is, something must have changed, because your average 40-year-old has a hell of a lot less long to live than your average 25-year-old. So something must have happened, but it hasn't done any harm yet. So those are the things that we need to look at if we want to understand why things eventually go wrong. By the early 80s, all of the things that I think are relevant to aging were already major topics of conversation and discussion and research within the community that studies the biology of aging. Nothing has been discovered for the past 30 years that adds to that list. Now, exactly how you describe that list is, you know, more or less a matter of taste. The way that I describe it is to subdivide, you know, to classify all of the things that qualify as damage by this step, which are these intermediates between metabolism and pathology, to classify them in just seven major categories. You can classify them in other ways, but the particular classification that I use, I, I like it largely because it helps us with the next stage, which I'm going to get to in a moment, namely the description of what we might do to actually intervene. So, seven major categories. Here are the categories. Category number one is loss of cells, which simply means cells dying and not being automatically replaced as they die by the division of other cells. Simple enough, right? So the number of cells goes down, eventually that's bad for you, rather in the same way that, you know, tiles fall off your roof. You know, a few tiles, not a problem. Too many, rain starts getting in. Number two, having too many cells because cells are dividing when they're not supposed to. You've heard of that, it's called cancer. Right? That's what cancer is. It's cells dividing when they're not supposed to. That's all it is. Turns out there's another way in which you can have cells, having too many cells, that's bad for you. And that is when cells don't die when they are supposed to. You might not have thought of that, some of you, but it turns out that that's actually rather important in aging. Especially, well, the immune system is a great example of where that's important. In the immune system, cells are supposed to die after an infection has been eliminated. And that is the requirement, because it makes room for the proliferation of other cells to come back the next infection. That starts to go wrong in old age, and we suffer from it. So, 
Those are the three types of damage that can be described at the cellular level. The other four types are at the molecular level. And two of them happen inside our cells. And the other ones happen in the spaces between our cells, the extracellular space. So inside our cells, one thing that happens is we accumulate mutations in a special part of the cell called the mitochondria. They extract energy from nutrients. They do the chemistry of breathing. So they do the thing that basically combines oxygen with nutrients to extract energy from the nutrients and create carbon dioxide. And they have their own DNA. They're the only part of the cell that has their own DNA. And that DNA accumulates mutations and there's plenty of evidence that that's bad for us in all manner of different ways. We'd like to fix that, really. The other thing that happens inside the cell is garbage. Molecular garbage, simple as that. Here is, this is the problem that is exactly the same as what happens in your house if you don't throw out the garbage for a month. The house doesn't work so well. What's going on there is you've got loads of processes in the cell that create byproducts. And in general, the cell has other machinery that destroys those byproducts, or in some cases simply excretes them so that they go out in the urine. But there are some rare byproducts of metabolism, which, because they're rare, are not eliminated either by excretion or by de degradation, but rather they're just sequestered. And the reason that evolution hasn't taken the trouble to figure out a way to get rid of them is because they accumulate so slowly that in the wild, where we have all this predation and hypothermia and starvation and so on, hardly any of us got old enough for that accumulation to be problematic. It's only now that we live in civilization, where lots of us get really old, that that accumulation gets to a point that is problematic. But when it's problematic, it's awfully problematic. This problem, the accumulation of molecular garbage inside the cell, is the reason why we get cardiovascular disease, which is, of course, the number one killer in the entire Western world, has adapted stress. It's also the reason why we get macular degeneration, the main cause of blindness in the elderly. And it also has a major role in neurodegeneration of all kinds. So it's a major problem, and we need to fix it. We need to get rid of that garbage. All right, so that's number five. I've got two left, and they are, as I mentioned, molecular again, and they're outside the cell. So one of them is exactly the same as the one I just mentioned, molecular garbage. Turns out that does happen outside the cell as well. great example that's well known is senile plaque, senile Alzheimer's disease. Those of you who know Alzheimer's disease know that it's um, defined, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's is defined as having two features in your brain. One of them is molecular garbage inside the cell, a particular type of garbage called tangles, and the other one is plaques, which are outside the cell, made of a different type of stuff. Right. It turns out that molecular garbage outside the cell happens elsewhere, that's the brain, so there's plenty of other examples, but that's the, world, that's the best known one. And finally, number seven is again outside the cell, as I said. In this case, it's not garbage, it's stiffening. So there's a, there's a bunch of proteins outside the cell which are linked together in a sort of lattice, and they're called the extracellular matrix. And they turn out to be, that turn out to be really important in how we stay together. Because the extracellular matrix gives our tissues their biophysical properties, their, you know, their shape and their behavior. And the extracellular matrix needs to be elastic in order to do that, especially in certain places. The major, major arteries are the number one example of this. Major arteries obviously need to, need to accommodate the constant pulsation of blood pressure from the heartbeat. And they do that by being elastic, by being able to stretch. Now it turns out that during life, 
that elasticity is diminishing because of chemical reactions that the proteins that the epithelial matrix is made of ha uh, undergo with the with, with, with various small molecules in the circulation, especially with sugar. And those chemical reactions cause new chemical bonds to be formed between the proteins that make the extracellular matrix, and that, that basically the random distribution of those bonds causes stippling to happen. And that's why we get high blood pressure as we get older. It's also actually true in the eye, in the lens of the eye. It's why we can't see things close up as we get older. Same, same thing is going on. There are your seven things. That is aging, those seven deadly things. That is all that aging is about. That was Aubrey de Grey talking about the seven deadly things. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com and www.2ser.com slash shows slash diffusion. After his two-hour talk, Ian Wolfe spoke with Aubrey de Grey about the difference between the SENS Foundation approach to the diseases of ageing and the traditional approach of conventional medicine. So there are really two traditional approaches to intervening in ageing, to postponing the ill health of old age that people have talked about and thought about. There's one approach which I like to call the geriatric approach, and that encompasses everything that really exists today in medicine for the diseases of old age. Essentially, it comes down to treating the diseases of old age just the same way as we treat other diseases. So in other words, just attacking them, trying to remove them from the body. And people have realized for quite a long time, though a lot of people are still in denial about this, that that's actually never going to work particularly well, that it's really a losing battle. The reason it's a losing battle is very simple. These diseases of old age are not like infectious diseases or whatever. They are later stages of an intrinsic process called aging that goes on throughout life and that consists of the accumulation of molecular and cellular damage in the body. That damage basically makes the diseases of old age more and more inevitable as time goes on and it makes the geriatrician's job more and more difficult. So it's a losing battle. The second approach, the second traditional approach, which I like to call the gerontology approach, says, well, let's try and postpone the diseases of old age by stopping this damage from accumulating so fast in the first place, by cleaning up our metabolism so that this damage is not created in the same way as normal and not at the same rate. And that has a lot more promise, but it also is very, very unrealistic at the moment because ultimately it relies on uh, being able to understand our metabolism, the way the body normally works, so well as to be able to tweak it, to tune it, without doing more harm than good by unintended effects of the changes that we make. So, to answer your question, the reason why my approach, our approach at Sense Foundation is different from traditional approaches is because it follows neither of those two paradigms. Instead, it's a sort of, it's intermediate between the two. What we want to do is not try and slow down the creation of this damage throughout life and also not slow down the process where damage creates the diseases of old age. What we want to do is separate those two processes from each other by periodically repairing that damage 
so that even though it's being created at the natural rate, it will not reach the level of abundance that causes the pathologies, the diseases of old age to emerge and to progress. And we feel that that approach is realistic because ultimately it relies on regenerative medicine, a variety of techniques that have been developed mostly for other reasons than to combat aging. Um, but nevertheless, that restores the function of the body after some kind of damage, after some kind of injury, by restoring its structure, by enabling the body to to repair itself better, essentially by augmenting the automatic self-repair machinery that the body already has. That's what's different about our approach. And would you be able to give an example of something like that? So, one example of the regenerative approach to combating aging is stem cell therapy. Stem cell therapy is of course a big and fascinating and high-profile field right now, but the overwhelming majority of stem cell therapy is targeted against some kind of disease or acute injury, so spinal cord trauma or heart attacks or something like that. We feel that it's equally relevant and valid and legitimate and plausible to address, to use stem cell therapy against some of the aspects of aging. Parkinson's disease, for example, which is the progressive loss of cells in a particular part of the brain. Um, that's actually already being tried, it's already in early stage clinical trials, there's still some way to go to make it work reliably, but it's definitely, when it does work, it works spectacularly. So that's one example. Another example, let's again look at the brain, at Alzheimer's disease. There's actually a phase three clinical trial going on already to get rid of the molecular garbage that accumulates in the spaces between the brain cells, things called senile plaques made of a substance called amyloid, and that's going really well. As I say, phase three clinical trials, that's just the last stage before regulatory approval. Um, most of the other aspects of aging, most of the other types of damage that accumulate are more difficult to address than those, and the development of therapies that succeed in actually repairing those types of damage is at an earlier stage, but we know what we need to do. We are getting there. So, what do we need to do what are, what are the, the different approach going to bring us? Well, it would take me much longer than this interview to go through everything in enough detail to really answer that question properly. Though, of course, I've, all, I've written it all down. There's plenty of academic publications that I've published over the years, and there's also my book, Ending Aging, which came out a few years ago now, but it's still pretty up to date, uh, describing the details of this. But ultimately, to generalize, to put it in a nutshell, it's all about repair. Sometimes repair at the molecular level, and sometimes repair at the cellular level. But it's all about restoring the structure and composition of our tissues and of the whole body to how it was at an earlier age. So it's really about, well, what they would have called in science fiction, rejuvenation. You're bringing back the body to a youthful state where it can maintain its own health. You've totally got it. The process here involves turning back the clock. This is not a case of slowing down the clock and allowing us to age more slowly but still to age. This is a case of taking people who are already relatively old, in 60 or 70 or whatever, and turning them back so that they are biologically 20 or 30 instead. This is, I guess you, it has been portrayed in science fiction, but it's not science fiction anymore. This is very much science foreseeable. Optimistically, how soon could we start getting these medicines into operation for people? 
I don't do optimism. Realistically, I think we have a 50-50 chance of developing these therapies to a decisive level of sophistication and comprehensiveness within about 25 years from now. Now, I think the only thing that could really slow that down, apart from, of course, bad luck in the science, which is why I talk about a 50-50 probability, is that we could have inadequate funding, especially in the early stages of this work, where we are right now, and while there is still a good deal of lack of credibility to all of this. People are still entrenched in the view that ageing is inevitable and there's no way that medicine will ever be able to do anything about it. But if we can have just a little money, we're talking about maybe $100 million a year for the next decade, then I feel that we have a very high probability of making enough progress that that problem goes away and money will cease to be any difficulty at all. What sort of world do you think it would be like if realistically in 25 years the money comes through and the research is done and the science comes good and we can do this regenerative medicine and bring people back to a youthful healthy age for longer? Ultimately the question of what a world would be like without ageing is almost almost the wrong question to ask because we are talking about 20 years ahead of here at minimum and maybe a lot longer and of course so many other things change in that sort of time frame so talking about what the world would be like as if nothing else had changed is sort of the wrong question but ultimately what we can say is the world would be a world without sick people people would not get sick when they happen to have the misfortune to have been born a long time ago and the main repercussions of that is we wouldn't have to spend our time looking after sick people and that seems like a good thing. So why do you think it is that so many people are resistant to the idea of eliminating sickness? I think it's pretty clear why people treat ageing psychologically as being so distinct from normal diseases. I think they feel that ageing has this psychological stranglehold over them. That, you know, it's something that we've always known is that hard wall that we're never going to get through. And they've, ma- they've got to put it out of their minds somehow and get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing. So, you know, it sort of makes sense, or it has historically made sense, to engage in arbitrarily irrational rationalizations of the of the horror of ageing. It's only now that we're in striking distance of seriously bringing ageing under medical control that that pro-ageing trance, as I've called it, becomes an enormous part of the problem. And your foundation, what's it called? Sense Foundation. And it stands for? Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. I know that's terribly long and long-winded, It does actually have some justification in terms of its context within the history of gerontology, but really, you know, we don't talk about the full name very much because it doesn't really make any difference. Oh, sure. And you also have the Methuselah Prize? So, the first foundation that I co-founded was the Methuselah Foundation, which started as um, an organisation to orchestrate the, um, well, to orchestrate a a couple of prizes. Prizes for achieving unprecedented longevity of mice. The idea here was really a PR exercise. We wanted to raise the profile of longevity research, which was something that people hardly ever heard about back then. And that worked extremely well. So the Methuselah Foundation still exists, and the prizes still exist. Actually, new prizes have now been um, uh, initiated. There's There's something called the New Organ Prize, which is for tissue engineering. 
in 2009 we split the foundation, the Mathilda Foundation in two and we moved all of the research funding activities, the direct funding of particular projects, out of it into a new foundation, Sense Foundation. And that's what I work for now. Aubrey de Grey, what's your website? www.sense.org, S-E-N-S, just S-E-N-S, not S-N-E-S-E, S-E-N-S.org, and that's, that's the website of Sense Foundation, and you can find out all the things that the interview didn't talk about right there. You can also find a link to go and get the book, Ending Aging, which I wrote a few years ago, and which will tell you all the details of how we are going about defeating aging. Terrific. Aubrey de Grey, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Aubrey de Grey, world-leading researcher into ageing, the diseases of ageing, and how to rejuvenate the body to ward off the diseases of old age. You can find out more about Aubrey's work and that of the SENS Foundation at www.sens.org. Aubrey appeared on ABC TV's Catalyst show in March 2012. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Have you got a science question that's been bugging you? Email us your science questions to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And we'll do our best to answer your question in a future episode of Diffusion Science Radio. If you'd like to be on the radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SER studios, or if not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next time on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.